Welcome to the discussion, Technology and Great Power Competition, sponsored by Palantir. Here's today's moderator, Jason Miller. Welcome to the discussion. My guest today is Colonel Jennifer Krolikowski, the Senior Material Leader for Space Command and Control at the Space Systems Command. Colonel Krolikowski, welcome to the discussion. Thank you. I appreciate uh, the invitation today. Looking forward to our chat. We're going to have a fun conversation today on acquisition. Now, before the audience sighs and, and says, uh-oh, acquisition, <laughs> this is this will be a great conversation because I think there's so many interesting things that are going on across the Space Force. And in many ways, the Space Force is starting, uh, scratch is maybe not the best word for it, but you all are starting at, at an area that a lot of agencies didn't get to. So let's just start right there. What is your acquisition strategy for the Space Force? Oh gosh, so um, so I'm actually going to speak to my particular program itself, so Space Command and Control. Um, you know, our nickname is Kobayashi Maru. If um, some people are following us uh, in, in that fashion, um, but a lot of the stuff that we are um, doing and kind of pathfinding, uh, we're using that as information to be able to potentially extend to the broader Space Force and in, in ways that we ac um, acquire. Uh, in that fashion. Uh, so for me specifically, I work in uh, the field of software. Uh, so trying to um, provide um, different software capabilities to um, uh, to our combatant, to the um, JTFSD, so the US Space Command, um, and as well as the CIFSIC uh, from that kind of branch of things too, um, again, rolling up into Space Command. So primarily um, my operators are um, the National Space Defense Center that's in Colorado Springs um, and the Combined Space Operations Center that's at uh, Vandenberg, uh, also here in California. Um, but a lot of the things that we're doing is we're trying to shift the mindset of how we actually go about and acquire. Uh, and so if you're, if you're tracking, you know, there's typically three things that you do from, um, you know, from the whole acquisition process, uh, requirements, the actual acquisition itself, and then the, the financial aspects that are associated with that. Um, so from a requirements perspective, um, you know, one of the first things I started when we um, kind of kicked off this venture with Kobayashi Maru was to bring in those users and operators in like right from the start and have that dialogue and that continuous communication with them. One, to not only make sure I understand where their pain points are and you know what is it that they are looking to, um, better their mission or to be to better performance uh, for their mission um, but also to give them back you know some expectation management of what we can do on the acquisition side from either a tech perspective or a timeline um, for what it would take to get to um, alleviating some of those pain points um, but having that continuous dialogue back and forth um, over the last couple of years has been extraordinarily helpful um, for us especially in um, the realm of user adoption uh, you know there's a lot of times in acquisition is that you know when we receive um, you know, one of the JSON's documents and we're trying to interpret it and understand, you know, because it was just kind of thrown over the fence to us. And we're trying to understand what that requirement set looks like without necessarily having that user interaction. Um, we end up maybe building something that nobody ultimately like wants, right? And so, um, and, or much less uses after that build has been done. So we look to making sure we have that that dialogue and that communication back and forth with our users um, so that they actually want to use it <laughs> when we when we when we deliver it um, and so far in the 11 applications that we have built to date um, over the last couple of years um, we have them all in operational acceptance and are being used on on the floor specifically um, so very excited with that um, that you know now we have over 2600 users um, from all of the applications that we have uh, and versus when we had um, 
uh, JMS, the Joint Mission System, which was my predecessor program uh, for there. I think we had maybe 50 people you know, using uh, that particular um, set of software that was delivered. So um, that user adoption rate and that operational acceptance is, is a very, very important to us. And so that's how we um, work on the requirement side to, to do that evolution and actually um, propel the Space Force to getting after what is actually really needed uh, so that we can uh, enhance that mission set. Um, the second piece in there is, uh, you know, from the acquisition standpoint, uh, so we are actually one of the Pathfinder programs for the DOD uh, for the software, what they call the software pathway. And uh, so that was a, um, the 5000.87 uh, is what specifically refers to uh, for the policy there uh, that was signed out in May earlier this year. Uh, but we actually helped with that building of that policy. You know, our program started uh, in the late 2018 piece is when we moved over into doing more agile sorts of concepts uh, for acquisition and how we actually build software. So we've been in this um, feedback loop with the policymakers of, here's what I'm experiencing in the field and here's where my pain is, if you will, from an acquisition perspective, um, whether that is like within contracting or with, um, just reporting and, and execution and what a milestone looks like and, and all of those. And that feeds back into um, the, the software pathway information. Uh, so that's actually helped us propel a lot. Uh, so like I said, you know, those 11 applications, um, you know, we did in, you know, under two and a half, three years to have all of those delivered. Um, and a lot of that contributed because of the way that we changed acquisition um, versus historically where we had JMS that was working for about five, eight years only was able to deliver one item and then nobody really, really used it. So a lot of that acquisition mindset change has been helpful in us, you know, producing capability and, and actually getting that out to um, our customers in our field. Let me jump in real quick because I want to yeah. go, because I think before we get into the third leg of, of the stool here, the user piece, we hear that a lot, the, the key piece to have bringing the users to understand, okay, this is what they want. I mean, this is really what we're talking about here, really is DevSecOps, Agile, Agile acquisition. That's really the, the, the innovation, if you will, and innovation is maybe not the best word that you all have brought into it is, is not just throw it over the transom and hope it gets done, but hey, here's piece one. You like it? No? Okay, I'll change it. Here's piece one now. Okay, you like it? Okay, now I'll go to piece two. It's, that, that, it's a change in mindset. No, absolutely. And, and I also, so that's actually one thing I, I probably should go back into um, is our culture and, and how we actually live and think within um, Kobayashi Maru. You know, so if, if people understand the reference of Kobayashi Maru, um, I'll, I'll harken back to that. So it is a, um, a Star Trek reference. And it's, um, it was an exercise that all cadets had to um, go through in order to see how they would handle a no-win situation. Um, and not that I'm in a no-win situation, but um, one of the things, you know, Captain or James T. Kirk, the cadet at the time, he actually changed the conditions of the scenario. He looked at the problem differently in order to be able to win and beat um, that particular exercise. So here at KM, we actually look at the problem differently. How do we actually embrace that in order to to get to wins or yes or, or what have you um, so that we can produce that. So one of those cultural aspects is what we call user-centered everything. So yes, it is about that interaction with our user community, the guys who are actually operating that software. But I also, my, my leadership is one of my users and the stakeholders I have there from the vision that General Raymond has for the Space Force and what he needs for um, operational space command and control. And 
and what the combatant commander needs, you know, from, from his perspective. So I take those visions and I balance that with what the operator pain points are so that as I build my software, I can build in such a way that it stays flexible, uh, that it can scale and be extensible, and that I can actually start to balance both sides from a top down and a bottoms up approach to be able to actually um, extend that uh, software to address whatever changing priorities there are or changing threats there may be. Um, but I, I bring all of the, the users that I have um, in there so that my software is actually built appropriately. I'm glad you brought up the uh, Kobayashi Maru and, and the, the background of that because everyone thinks it's Star Wars, right? They hear Kessel Run, <laughs> they hear, they're, they're always thinking Star Wars and there's always that battle, Star Trek versus Star Wars. We re we represent the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> very cool, very cool. Um, the third piece to the stool, I want to have you go down as well, is around the acquisition process when it brings up the requirements, the acquisition, the financial aspects. That's the other really challenging when it comes to ensuring that you're meeting the user's need is, well, the users want every bell and whistle. They want the most shiniest object of all shiny objects because they heard somewhere something that, well, if you do the AI this way, it, it solves all my problems. I never have to come to work again or something. So, so walk us through that acquisition process piece. Yeah, no, so for sure. So I understand, and, and that's part of like, I welcome those questions from the user community or like if they're seeing something, um, you know, the latest, greatest tech that actually helps me go and explore those things. Um, but then I also bring back to them, you know, the, the expectation management or the reality of, you know, if the tech's not ready yet or how would we ingest it or, or those sorts of things. Um, but when you go back into the financial piece, um, so um, as everybody, you know, is aware, you know, Congress um, appropriates in different, um, provides funding in different appropriations. So we have our DT&E, uh, we have operations maintenance, and we have procurement funding. And what we were seeing in software is that, um, you know, there's not a real big difference between the guy who may be uh, writing code for a new feature is the same, and he's the same guy who may be doing a patch. But the way our financial system would have it is that when he's doing a feature, well, that's our DT&E. And if he's doing a patch, that's O&M. And so then it becomes on us, like it almost became an argument of like, which color am I supposed to be using for which thing? And, and how am I supposed to try and figure out how much money I have for each of those if I'm in an agile construct to where I need to be adaptable regardless of what the prioritizations are or what's coming down for the software builds that I have. So one of the things that um, we also helped Pathfind is um, what we call Budget Authority 08 or BA08. And what that does for us is have a single um, appropriation, a single color, if you will, for software. Um, we were one of nine programs that started in uh, FY21 to explore this. And we have found an extreme success uh, you know, at my level of, of us helping um, be able to make the uh, appropriate trades between, you know, should I be doing some legacy stuff, which would have been traditionally O&M dollars versus like I can take some risk here and actually apply it to new capability in RDT&E. And I don't have that artificial um, delineation between RDT&E and O&M. So I actually maximize 
um, the, the funding that Congress appropriates me to getting capability out there faster and also then decommissioning the legacy systems that I that I don't need anymore. Um, so because in the past, we were seeing, you know, if I had asked for this much O&M, which if you know the, the fight up the palming cycle that we have, you know, you try and project five years out what you need and like hope that you guessed it right by the time that 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 year shows up. Um, now, like in the past, we had to actually give money back because it wasn't the right color for the work that I needed to get done. Now, because I am able to have all of that funding put together um, and I can work with my users where their priorities are and actually apply that funding to it, um, it's that much helpful for me to um, use every dollar that uh, the taxpayers um, that we're grateful that we receive for that capability that gets out to the users. The pilot program that happened, there's so much more to talk to for that. And we're just right up on a break. So before I do that, um, this was approval from Congress. This was special authority from Congress that said, uh, you know, C2 and, and Space Force and these other eight programs can, can try this out. And then I'm sure you have to do some sort of report back to Congress about how it's going. Oh, no, absolutely. Um, because obviously they want to get the feedback themselves to see if this was a with if this was worthwhile for them and whatnot. So I work very closely with um, DOD and uh, with the um, with the uh, ANS folks up there um, to be able to provide that feedback so that they can loop that in with the, what the other programs are experiencing and, and provide that information back to Congress. Um, it's gotten so um, popular, if you will, that for FY22, the list has grown of, of programs that want to take advantage of um, BA08. And so we're very excited to um, see uh, how this can actually help other um, program managers be able to capitalize and maximize their spending power as well. All right, Colonel, let's take a quick break and come back. We'll continue the conversation because I have so many more questions to ask you about that funding because that has been the biggest challenge as we've seen throughout uh, not just the Air Force and the DOD, but across all government. But we'll take a quick break. You're listening to the discussion, Technology and Great Power Competition, sponsored by Palantir on Federal News Network. When leading public and private sector organizations need to make decisions in times of crisis, they rely on Palantir. For over a decade, Palantir has helped solve some of the world's most important problems, from distributing vaccines to millions to deterring national security threats. When the stakes are high, decision makers call Palantir. Palantir, foundational software of tomorrow delivered today. To get started, visit Palantir.com. That's Palantir.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the discussion, Technology and Great Power Competition, sponsored by Palantir on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Colonel Jennifer Korlikowski, the Senior Material Leader for Space Command and Control at the Space Systems Command. Now, Colonel, before break, we we're talking about kind of the way you've set up the, the acquisition approach for C2, the three pillars, the, the, and we were talking about the color of money, and you and I could, I think, talk so much more about the color of money and the challenges that brings, but I'm going to maybe move us forward because one of the things that is really important that you all are doing is looking at the, the industry, industrial base and saying, okay, how can we bring in some of those folks who are different, maybe non-traditional contractors, but also work with traditional contractors. Let's start there about how you're trying to find that right balance, how you're trying to attract folks who maybe say, I I've never worked with DOD or the federal government before. How are you trying to bring them into the fold? 
No, for sure. And that's that's also part of um, the culture that that we also um, explore here within Kobayashi Maru and um, kind of goes into that that whole build versus buy kind of um, discussion set as well. So um, so, yes, we are very welcoming of what we would call those non-traditional um, companies that would tend to work uh, that don't tend to work with defense but also have a very a lot to offer um, from you know the the market that they capture you know on the commercial side um, so one of the things that we also recognize here at km like i am never going to be able to invent like the next it or the next software that's going to compete with what industry is already developed or what they're already pushing on um you know people like google and netflix and amazon and and all of those things um you know from uh like how you do you know cloud native building and containerized workflows and you know all of that sort of stuff like me as the government like industry is already surpassing us from the government so I should use that, <laughs> right? I should like bring that in and embrace, you know, the the, the things that um, uh, tech can, or the commercial world can accelerate me on for the elements of the architecture that I need for. So, um, so for example, um, you know, in a typical um, software tech stack, if you will, you have the um, hosting environment. Uh, which we use the cloud as much as possible. Um, the uh, the platform, so think of that as like your operating system uh, that you have on your computer or on your cell phone or something like that. Uh, and then you have your, all your applications on top. We actually inject another layer in there that uh, we call um, data as a service um, because we're so intensive um, with respect to data and, and, and the processing that we need to have with that. Um, we recognized really early on that we needed kind of an enterprise offering for all of our applications to be able to um, keep data authoritative, have the cleansing, curating, ontology, knowledge mapping, all of that sort of stuff in there. So we actually inject another layer um, from our architecture. Um, so in traditional acquisition, you would hire one defense prime that would do that whole entire stack and where they may be good at a um, in the domain for like an application perspective you know maybe not as um accelerated as you know say vmware is on platform or as palantir is for you know data layer sort of of work in that respect and so by us breaking that stack apart and actually getting best of breed in each of those areas um we're able to take in that stuff from industry that is you know um, awesome and helps accelerate, you know, the, the, the stack of it in general. Um, so like, so case in point, you know, we have, um, again, our data layer, um, we built that into our architecture, but because we were able, we had that infrastructure there and we were doing it for space command and control, we realized that we had other partners that needed to, um, Take advantage of the, uh, they wanted to take advantage of what we were doing with data as well and knowing that we had that commercial capability you know they came in to see how we could leverage so we we teamed with um nora northcom and we also teamed with uh, the department of the air force level ingested data sets that they needed and wanted as well and um were able to kind of um get a site picture of you know air force readiness and then space force readiness and how did that translate to homeland defense and and so information that people never were able to see before um we were able to actually um enable because we needed this for space c2 being such a data intensive um system uh and then further from that 
um, you know, we were able to actually help with uh, the Afghan airlift um, because we were able to pull in information from you know, our um, infrastructure with what the army was doing and with what IC was doing, the intel community, bring all of that together. And we were then able to maximize you know, how we can uh, get aircraft and personnel and equipment and everything that we needed um, for the airlift that happened uh, you know, about a month or so ago. Um, that all of that success then has also led us to um, you know, what can we do to expand that across the Space Force and help that enablement you know, there uh, to extend so much so that we're actually setting up um, a cross-mission data division within the directorate that I work in to focus specifically on those data questions and issues. But all of that stems back to you know, industry can help us with that. Um, they're leading cutting edge on, on that type of data work. And um, so it, it just makes sense to me at least <laughs> to bring in um, those best of breeds and just and buy it at this point. Um, because even if we tried to build it, which there could be some value in it, um, industry has it today. And you know, it may make sense for us as the government to build it, to have um, maybe some of that ownership, but I don't have time to wait five, 10 years before the government may be able to build it. And by then industry you know, would have progressed that much further too. So there's a, there is a balance there, um, but uh, we're trying to build where it makes sense um, and then buy definitely where it makes sense too and bring all of those things together to integrate it uh, into my ecosystem so that I get the best of all worlds depending on um, what part of my architecture I'm looking at. Thank you for breaking down kind of the way you approach the different pieces and parts to this this cloud this 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 uh, DevSecOps approach, if you will, or agile approach. The one thing that though, came to mind as you went through it is: so, are you playing the role of systems integrator? Are you playing the role of lead systems integrator for this? Because if you're pulling vendor X for the the data layer, and vendor Y for the cloud layer, and and and, and vendor Z for a different layer, someone's got to make sure that the layers play nicely together. There's interoperability. And what if you buy vendor X, but vendor X and vendor Y, they need some middleware and that, that adds a mm -hmm. challenge. So where's, is, that, is that the role you and, and, and Kobayashi Maru are playing? So um, ultimately, yes. <laughs> um, but um, as to your point, like as you're describing it, you know, that is rather complex. Um, you know, and we can hire um, a, um, an integrator to do that, but we're also seeing like, who, which company has that skill sets, which I'm, I would love to be able to explore that a little bit more of, because, you know, there could be some great integration between application and platform, but there's a different integration between, you know, data and hosting environment, let's say. So there's um, the government right now, we, we firmly believe in um, government led development um, so that we have, an, we take an active role. Uh, not a passive role with the companies that we work and the contractors that we have um, so that we actually are teaming with them. There's a relationship there in the way that we're building. Um, so it, again, I want to avoid things of throwing over the fence. So like I mentioned earlier, like I don't want requirements thrown over the fence to me and I hope I understand them. I want to work and, and build that relationship there. Same thing with you know, acquisition. I don't want to just throw a contract over the fence and hope something came back. I have to have that active interaction with the contracting team, with the contractors that I have um, in order to be able to, to guide and shape that build. So the other piece of it, and I know this is, this is um, something that uh, is a little bit of a shift as well. Um, you know, a lot of people want to spend two years designing a system and, and, and take that, that time, you know, almost like a strategic pause and, and think about that. Well, one, I, I don't always have two years. And, um, and then two, like, 
who's to say I was right, you know, in that design, especially given like what I think of today versus how life has changed two years from now, is that design still appropriate? So what we try and do then as a, as a mindset shift is, okay, I know the vision here. I know where, like, I'm always going to have to do space domain awareness and battle management command and control, but the details under there change and evolve over time. So I need to be able to have my design grow and flex with me in that way too. And so when I identify something has to integrate, I do that, I, I hesitate to say it's in real time because we're a little bit more deliberate than that, but I didn't do like a design, you know, a whole thing of like, where's all my integration points and hope I got that part right. Or maybe I project, you know, in the old way of design, I might've projected integration points that I didn't even need. And so did I raise resources there versus going after where I did need to integrate. So there's a bit of a, of a shift on how the build happens. And I know that um, some of, you know, I'm an engineer myself. <laughs> so I know that that can be a little, um, a little daunting for some people who want to you know, lay it all flat right from the start. But I think that's one of the biggest things that we offer here in KM is, is that flexibility and that, um, that evolution that can happen. So we're not static as we when we build something we actually think about the dynamic evolution and make sure that um, all elements of our architecture can accommodate that uh, so we can take on any um, requirement changes or priority changes or threat changes that are in there without having to go back and build a whole another new system um, because of that the other piece that comes to mind as you go through this is the vendor lock-in challenge and there's always a concern about well are we wedded to a single vendor because they're so integrated into the stack. Is that part of, because part of what you all are doing is saying, okay, that's a traditional contractor. Oh, there's a non-traditional one that has a cool new feature that we want to add to it. Well, do they integrate with this other vendor? How do you ensure that you're not getting kind of locked into one set of capabilities or one set of, of type of, of architecture? No, um, and that's very, because I, I get that question, you know, obviously quite often. Um, and so there, there's actually like two folds um, to that. One is um, shifting to a mentality that uh, um, software or, um, you know, that tech or whatever is, is disposable. Um, I'm not wedded to that forever. Like, and that's a, that's a definite shift, I think, for the government. You know, they're used to like, oh, you delivered me something, now I get to keep it for 20, 50 years. And, and, and really in software, like you, you can't, like if I have it for more than three to five years, I'm like, I'm obsolete, right? So I need to, to have that mindset of it being disposable. And if there's a company that can do, um, you know, this piece of the tech better, faster, cheaper, um, then great, let's bring you in and we'll pop out, you know, the other piece. And that could be a government built piece too, right? So it's not just like I'm going from vendors to vendors per se. Um, but where I look at who can accelerate me, who can optimize my ecosystem um, at that given time. And let's bring that in, pop out the old stuff and then, and then shift that way. Um, the other part of that, um, the second piece of it, and sorry, it's like, I just had like- a Actually, uh, it's a great, it's a great yeah. story because I want to jump in here because we're just about out of time. Yeah. Give me a sense, what's the one, I'm going to ask you just for one because we're just about out of time. What's the one big lesson you've learned from this effort over the last two and a half, three years? Um, so the biggest thing is, is the education challenge, if you will, to trying to describe and bring people on board with the mindset and the mentality and the way that we execute. Um, so 
there's there's probably better ways I could have done to express like a lot of the the concepts that you know we shared here today, um, especially to um, you know some of our external you know um, stakeholders, whether that be in um, the Pentagon or in um, Space Force headquarters or my users or or any there. There's a lot of education in here to go from you know the industrial age way that we've built things and then shifting it to this other mindset that is you know more agile and different kinds of of concepts. And it, it does make people feel uneasy with the change, and I get that. I'm here to help facilitate and and guide that um, uh, that journey together. But there's there's a it, most of my job is actually a people problem, not a not a tech problem. <laughs> we, we've so. we've heard that many times over the last uh, 25 years. It's never the technology; it's always the people. And it sounds like right. you were going down a pretty good path to solve both of them. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today, so let me thank my guest. Colonel Jennifer Krolikowski is the Senior Material Leader for Space Command and Control at the Space Systems Command. Uh, Colonel Krolikowski, great to have you on. Thank you so much and appreciate, uh, appreciate being able to chat today. I'm Jason Miller and you've been listening to the discussion Technology and Great Power Competition sponsored by Palantir on Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Palantir. Thank you for listening to the discussion Technology and Great Power Competition sponsored by Palantir on Federal News Network.